Hello, and welcome to How to Start Up, a podcast for anyone starting a company in 2020. This is a collection of conversations with people who have all successfully started, run, and even sold their own companies, sharing not only professional but personal experiences on what we should be doing now, next, or never. In this episode, we hear from Quentin Clover, founder of Canalan. He talks through his incredible story as to how his company came to be. And for those wondering, Canalan delivers custom humanitarian projects simply and efficiently all around the world. He shares points on why sitting at your laptop doesn't automatically mean you're working well, how to build in balance to your day, and why going above and beyond with stakeholders is a huge key for success. This is a slightly extended episode as his stories were just so interesting. And side note, please bear with me as this is my first attempt at editing a podcast. Hi, Quentin. Thank you for coming on to How to Start Up today. Uh, it would be great if you could take a couple of minutes to introduce yourself and your company when you started it and just tell us a little bit more about what you're up to. Sure. Thank you very much for having me, Juliet. My name is Quentin Clover and I'm the founding director of a company called Canalan. The easiest way to explain what Canalan is, it's effectively outsourced corporate social responsibility solution. So I run uh, humanitarian aid projects all over the world on behalf of my clients. And my clients tend to be people who, for one reason or another, don't choose to go down the standard route of donating to large charities. Um, And I've been running this since uh, January 2014. God, amazing. So a good six years under your belt. And what was it that drove you towards this particular Area. Well, um, it's a it's a complicated story. It's a good one, though. <laughs> There's a couple of things. I mean, it started my interest in the charity sector started many many years ago um, when I was young and working in London. I found it actually, to be honest, quite an impenetrable industry to get into and add any worth to um, at, at, at my age at the time and with my experience at the time. So, how old were you when you started? I was uh, early twenties. Um, and I, I'd done a lot of volunteering work and things in my teens, but I, when I really wanted to try and make a career in the charity sector, it was, um, I found it quite tough and I didn't really like the idea of, of working for a large corporation with not much idea of the end result of what it's actually doing on the ground. And, and most of the careers I could look at or jobs I was looking at were very much corporate office jobs in London and, and quite disconnected to sort of the, the overall objectives of the charity so I actually ended up working for the London Stock Exchange <laughs> yes I remember this the friend who is least likely to end up at a stock exchange and you did <laughs> yeah I mean there's, there's there's obviously some roles before and after but I think it's probably best to talk about the stock exchange because it, it taught me a lot and whilst I was in the stock exchange I um, volunteered to, to be part of their charity commission and the Charity Commission essentially is um, a group of people that meet a few times a year to, to pick the partner charity for the stock exchange going forward. And it would be the stock exchange would give X amount every year, but it would also be an opportunity for all the staff to have their own fundraisers or whatever it might be t- towards this charity. So I was on the Charity Commission there and it was my first insight into how corporations give, really. And... It, not just the stock exchange, a lot of corporations. I was very surprised about 
how little went into the decision-making process. It, it was very valiant what they were doing, and it's, it's great people are giving money to these charities, but there was no management or senior management involved in the commission. And it was just, it was uh, me and a couple of other people essentially from within the stock exchange who wanted to give up some lunch times. And I don't want to sort of slander the stock exchange on this, but it was, um, I understand it's quite uh, prevalent in, in or similar situations in most companies. And this is 15-ish years ago where companies are like, we do really well financially, we've got a solid business, but we feel like we ought to do something good in the world. So here's a chunk of money, here's a team of volunteers within our business that can go and choose how to spend it. Is that an unfair summary? No, that, that's a perfect summary. <laughs> Much clearer. <laughs> <than> that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was my first insight into it. Um, and I was a sales guy working at the stock exchange. So uh, yeah, I, I was just quite surprised at the process and so I, I worked for a couple of years in the stock exchange um I did I did sort of quite well in my work but I, I ended up moving to to Thailand <laughs> um where I was running a a marketing company this is probably like the 10th country you lived in by this stage in your life <laughs> the stock exchange is the antithesis of who Quinton is and how you live your life previously <laughs> so I was I was running a, a digital marketing firm in in Phuket uh, on behalf of a of an English owner, so I was heading heading up the office over there. One of the main uh, roles of the office was, was web design. I met a, a lady who happened to be looking after, or introduced me to someone that was looking after um, three hundred um, Burmese immigrant families uh, who were living in a shanty town in a fishing port in in terrible terrible conditions with their They'd been illegally trafficked over under false promises of a better life. And then once arriving in Thailand, they owe their agents the fees uh, for the trip, which were astronomical and impossible to pay. So the the parents were forced to work on the fishing boats, which were incredibly dangerous, for weeks at a time and leaving the children of these families uh, in the shantytown where they were at serious risk of kidnapping and trafficking into the sex trade in the Philippines, um, which was all part of the cycle of the agent's plan that originally trafficked them over. So it's a really bad situation. Um, and I just offered to build them a website to, to sort of help raise some money and some awareness of, of what was going on there. And then I just realized how bad it really was and that they really needed help and there was no infrastructure for it whatsoever, apart from these nice women that were sort of tr- doing their best to look after these kids in a, in a tiny chicken shed in the middle of the shantytown where they were trying to give the kids some education, like hundreds of children. And they were, the, the chicken shed was about five meters squared. Just, just, yeah, just terrible conditions. And the long and the short of it is I decided to raise money to build them a safe house and a school. It took me a year of, of fundraising, which was which was very, very difficult. And uh, after a year, I had enough money to break ground. And then it took another year of construction. And then in the end of 2013, we opened a school for um, 400 Burmese immigrant kids. That's incredible. I mean, it's incredible that you did that and achieved that. But the fact that you, it's also incredible because you weren't a builder and you you weren't from that country, (laughs) were learning the language to have managed to do that and then to fundraise, I presume, some ad hoc global donations. It was surprazing for me because <laughs> um, it, it, I wouldn't say 
my net, my personal network um, wouldn't be a huge help in this sort of situation in fundraising and at that time. So it was all cold um, and, I, and I eventually raised a quarter of a million pounds. But it was it, it, it taught me a lot about what, what comes next because obviously it was I was part of every stage of the building process with the engineers and the architects and, and I was learning everything as I went along. But also in terms of fundraising, I raised enough capital, as I said, to break ground. But after breaking ground, I was having to raise 20, 30K a month to to keep to keep the wheels on essentially to, to, until construction was complete. But it was it was it was a really stressful year. And the last sort of the last two months of construction, uh, somebody pulled out. One of the donors pulled out, and I needed to raise forty eight thousand, or the school just wouldn't happen. Um, which which is quite a common theme in Asia. You see a lot of or in Thailand, you see a lot of projects that have started and then they just go they go south. Um, so there was a big risk of that, a uh, big risk of failure. Um, and a friend of mine invited me to speak at a, a golf event at, at the hotel he was managing there. And these oil guys had come over uh, for a weekend to play golf. I was invited to speak on the third night when they were all sort of three sheets to the wind, like uh, three days into man's weekend. So everyone was drunk and I had to get up in front of them all and, and pitch this project. And nobody listened. It was just a nightmare. So I thought well, I was done and I went sort of to where they were all having beers and I got a drink and, I, and a guy just tapped me on the shoulder and he said, uh, listen, I really, really like what you've done. I'm, I'm super impressed. What do you need? And I said, well, I need 48,000 pounds. And he said, it would be in your account in the morning. <gasps> and that was it. He, he transferred the money to the charity account the next morning and we completed the school. It's, it, was all, it was just a series of very fortunate events that, that, that got it to be completed. Well, you say that, but you took the opportunity, you were you, talking to friends about it, you were communicating with people about where you're at and your friends was like, come and have a chat at this golf event. And you took that opportunity. So without that, without standing up, and also without hanging out with them afterwards, that would never have happened. Yeah, no, you're right. So that would be the most significant sort of milestone in, in what it created the business that I have now. A donor that put some money in uh, very early on in the process very supportive people uh, throughout the build process. They came on opening day, invited me for Christmas Day, just as a sort of thank you for getting this done. He um, sort of proposed a toast to everything, everything I achieved and said, we've been watching you for two years and we'd like you to replicate this for us all over Asia or indeed the world, as we haven't found any charities that we trust and we trust you to do this for us. So can you research and run due diligence on projects helping underprivileged women and children and we'll fund them as, as long as they are not part of big organizations and you can get it done that became uh, sort of client number one were you expecting that at all? absolutely not it's something that i've always thought about doing in, in certain uh, sort of varying formats um of, of sort of linking uh, big donors to small projects and showing much more impact and effect but it was it certainly wasn't on my mind when building the school and uh, yeah, so that became that became client client number one, and um, and the business has grown since then. I've built uh, well over twenty large projects, and we've helped directly just over one hundred thousand people in dire situations in Africa, Nepal, um, Burma, the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam. That is absolutely incredible. Congratulations, because I know I know you, and I've known you for a long time, and. 
you'd have only done it with the best intent. But the fact you're also able to work in inverted commas for a job that you love, that you have created for yourself is unbelievable. Do you ever take a moment to reflect and realise what you've achieved and how many people you've helped? I, I do. Um, it's kind of, it's a difficult one, not difficult, but it's unusual uh, because I work largely on my own. So my business is, is effectively me, but I have a huge network of people with whom I work around the world. It's, it's rather unusual working on your own because you, you don't get the pat on the back or anything. You, you can get lost in the numbers and the figures and the and the spreadsheets and the blueprints and all this. Unfortunately, in, in like a year like this with COVID and, and less traveling, it's, it's horrible to say it, but people sort of can become numbers on the page that you're helping. And it's, yeah, and it's the sort of, and then people start to ask different questions like what's the, the cost per person that we're helping? Those are not the questions I want to be answering because the, every project is completely different. I have a project in the Philippines, which is a, a, um, a children's village for, for victims of the sex trade. And it doesn't serve that many children just because of the way it needs to be run for security. It's an expensive project. The value that it brings is huge. It helps as me being on the ground a lot more to tell these stories to my clients. It shifts the the onus away from sort of the cost per individual and things like that, if if that makes sense. So your stakeholder management is a key part of keeping your funding alive. Uh, Yeah, just so I'll I'll explain a bit about the the structure. So my clients pay a retainer to my business and it's free and clear of anything else that they raise. So what they then do is they leverage that to their networks or to their business so that 100% of what any one of their network donates, it all goes on the projects. So there's no administrative costs. So it's quite a unique position for them to be in. They can, if they do a corporate fundraiser or whatever it might be, they can they can one hundred percent say that all the money will go on the projects. So I have an ongoing relationship with my clients for, for many many years. Uh, we sign contracts for so that we can have maximum impact over a long period of time. And then I do run the due diligence and research projects, and I pitch the projects back to my clients periodically. Then we decide which ones we're going to go ahead with. So there's always a pipeline of high impact projects. And then I, I briefly touched upon the fact that I have a large network of people that I work with. So what that means is to keep the payroll down on, on my business and to keep it simple and keep it working, every single person with whom I work is project specific. So they're within the budget each project. So I've got teams in Nepal, the Philippines, obviously everywhere I work, uh, and they're always working for us, but it just happens to be that the salaries come from the project budget and it's always project specific, which means there's a built-in sort of security there. If the guys finish projects on time and, and they do well, there's always another project coming. Well, it gives a real succinct view of how much a project costs yeah. and an efficient use of the funding that's coming in. And you can micromanage those lines to make sure it's really going to where it needs to go. Exactly. It's, it's a really stripped down way of doing things. Um, and I don't want to go into too many sort of percentages in terms of what we're doing differently to charities because charities do vary massively in the places that we work i've seen big charities build similar projects for for 30 40 percent higher prices than we are doing it because they're sending big teams in there to manage from the west and and this is infrastructure that needs to be paid for And and a prime example of that actually is I was in northern Thailand on the border with Burma uh, about five years ago. And I won't mention the charity, um, but I I went to meet with uh, members of an organization there of a large charity 
just to share information and to discuss a project that I was building there, which was a dormitory for uh, Burmese kids on the Thai side of the border in a refugee camp. And I needed to get together, it was something like 12 grand. And I was looking for some support for it because it would be good to have them on board. We arranged to meet for lunch. So I cycled there from my guest house, turned up to lunch, three members, three blacked out SUVs, fully branded up, which to get that kind of car in that area, you're talking four times the price it would cost in, in America. None of them were allowed to stay in a hotel for less than $250 a night because it negates the insurance policy of the charity. So it's just all these built-in infrastructure costs that really pump up the project budget, uh, which we don't have. Well, I remember you telling me once that you often would be sleeping on a floor somewhere. Just by the nature of the places that, that I work, um, a lot of them are particularly remote especially in the western himalayas um up up in the mountains i'll be in the in the sort of family house on the mud floor with sort of four or five other people which is the way there but presumably if you're working so closely with that local community it helps you build those relationships the fact that you're living how they live i mean you're always going to have that fly on the wall anthropological one step removed but the more integrated you can be into their values system the better you're absolutely right. Um, and and it, it helps my work so much to, to be in that position and be able to be able to travel in that way um, and, and not have to worry about the large charity behind me. And their rules and regulations, OH&S, insurance policies. Exactly. Yeah. And then but, but what it also does is it's um, what I've noticed over time. There's a lot of trust involved because it's I don't really represent huge amounts of money. So I'm not going in there in a blacked out SUV with these available budgets. It's, it's very, it's quite small scale what we do. And I believe I get the far truer prices for things but because I, there's this, this, it's not worth trying it because we just won't pay for it. You get maximum impact from the project if you work as closely as possible with the local communities you can, because you'll very often see organizations go in and build what they think is appropriate for the for the area and often it's not um because they're not listening enough to the people and we will only build something that the community feels they urgently need and completely support so i will go in and and obviously with with my with my translators and the teams and we'll have a meeting uh, wherever we are um and we'll have all the village elders and everyone Everyone will come. And it's a big day for, to discuss what needs to be done uh, in the village to solve whatever problem it might be. And the village, everyone has to buy into it. And everyone is assigned jobs or tasks and things that need to be met by a certain point. M- most of the projects that we build, there'll be about a 7% uh, piece of the budget, which is pro bono from the local guys. And they need to achieve that before we'll even come and break ground. So that is often bringing sand and water uh, and stones or whatever. And it, and it, it just shows that there is this community intent and community support. Well, they're invested in more ways than one. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, it's, it, in Tanzania, where I work uh, quite often, um, you wouldn't believe the number of schools that just do, did not need to be built. And now they're pubs or now they're something else serving a different thing. Um, and they would have been funded by a large organization who have probably never even seen it. 
And the way we do it, I feel, is how you can get maximum impact and help as many people as directly as possible. And I was going to ask you, what does success look like to you? But I think you've just explained it. Um, I, I would say it would be the end of the sex trade in the Philippines, which is obviously a, an impossible task for me. But that would be, that's my ultimate goal. So I'm, I'm heavily focused on on um, at least reducing uh, the, the traffic of young women in the Philippines. And what is it you enjoy the most about running your own business? I think it's the impact that we have on on, on communities and, and on children. So one of my favorite things is talking to the girls in an empowerment program that we that we run in Nepal. The girls in Nepal are given a very, very hard time and deeply suppressed um, when it's their monthly period. They're often uh, forced to stay with the animals in a hut um, with no food or human contact until the period is passed. And it's terrifying for these girls, um, but it's, it's ingrained in the in the community. Um, but anyway, that's a, another thing. But the, I love speaking to the girls who are now three years into our empowerment program, who, when I first met them, they wouldn't speak to me. They certainly wouldn't speak to, to men, essentially. They'd never speak up in public. They would not be going to school. It very deeply suppressed. And now the girls are, we have a weekly TV program a national TV program in, in Nepal that is driving women's rights. And these girls are now, they're about 15, 16 years old. They're on national TV arguing or debating with top level politicians, the news readers, and, and they're fighting for their rights on, on national television, literally fearless. And yeah, that's who I love to speak to and, and, and hearing their individual career plans. Loads of them want to go into politics. Another one, Asha, she is from a tiny village and was, was as I say, a very different person three years ago. I've, I've got a sponsor from California who is supporting her by letter writing and, and financially to, to take her all the way to black belt kickboxing. She's, she's a really good boxer, which she's found out over this last three years on our empowerment program as a, a large part of it is self-defense classes. So she's going all the way to black belt. She wants to be a professional boxer. One's going to be a politician. And those are the stories I love to hear. What do you enjoy the least about running your own business? It's dealing with government. Because everything that I build has to be signed off by local government and national government in most countries where I work. And the bureaucracy and the corruption and what you need to do to get things cleared is is, is a it's a fluctuating, it's a fluid situation. It's never the same. So you're constantly exposed to effectively yeah, corruption. Most people say it's their expenses. <laughs> and that leads me to my next question of what area have you had to learn about the most? Uh, establishing trusted relationships. And that's not not to sound as if I've had to learn because they were bad in the beginning. It's just, um, it's key to my business is the relationships because I'm often not in the country when things are under construction and I need I mean, we need good reporting. We need, obviously, the project to be finished on time. Um, so I've learned to nurture and, and maintain long-term relationships. And trust, presumably, as well. It, exactly. And, and, and what's required to do that is often differing. And there's many countries where, you, where I work that saving face is a very important part of the culture. There, there's always like a common ground. As long as you're respectful and you listen, um, I find it, it helps a lot. But without these relationships, I wouldn't have a business. And what was the best piece of advice that you were given when you first started? I'd say the funniest or the most useful, like practical wise, I got was from a taxi driver in Nepal 
when I was starting out there and I was flying into the, into the West of the Himalayas. And he just said, uh, he, I'd been with him for a few days. And he said, Clinton, just remember in Nepal, the clouds have rocks in them. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, just never fly when it's cloudy because there's no, um, there's nothing like the same security measures as we have in, in airplanes here. And what he's saying is they often just fly into cliffs. But, he, but I just liked it. In Nepal, the clouds have rocks in them. <laughs> I was going to say, does that still hold true? But presumably it does. Well, yeah, I'm still here, so I guess. Yeah. <laughs> what was the most sort of hairy moment that you had? Because I know you've had a very adventurous life. I'd say actually in terms of sort of a scary moment would be in in um, Santiago in Chile in South America. So I was researching projects over there um, and we had to go to the city slums of Santiago to visit on a certain project. And it's a ghetto, so there's, there's no police. It's completely self-governed, um, predominantly by, by drug dealers. You can only go with a, with a guard. You can only go between it's something like 9 and 11 in the morning when the majority of anyone you need to be worried about is still passed out from the night before. And we went to see... Uh, this woman who is in tears. Basically, she had she was a, a, a huge drug addict, and she'd been giving her baby away on a weekly basis to a drug dealer um, for whatever he wanted to do with the baby, and so that she could get her drugs. And she's distraught. She's distraught. It was like it was after a weekend. It's like she's done it again to the baby. So we, we, the people I was traveling was was there to get the baby out and to get this woman into therapy and things like that. But then. A guy turned up in a shed and then another guy turned up in a shed, all with guns, all shouting, all pointing at me, um, their fingers, not the gun. It was just a very tense situation. And I've been in a number of odd situations, but that just had this vibe when you, you were in the middle of a ghetto with no police whatsoever. People are shouting at you with guns. And uh, I'd say that was probably the, one of the worst moments. What it taught me is... It's really from, from from a practical perspective, it taught me just how dark things can get and that you really need to scrape under the surface to find projects that, that desperately need help but are not talked about. There's, there's a lot worse that needs to be dealt with and, and that's what I've always tried to focus on is, is the worst case situations. Given how harrowing the things are that you've witnessed and you work on your own and you work remotely and you're often travelling on your own, how do you build your resilience or who, who supports you in this? Who, who, when you have a bad day and something goes wrong, how do you keep going? I do, I have balance in my life. So I'm moving around from project to project um, and they, they vary massively. And I'm, I'm able to maintain a balance in, in the respect that I'm essentially, as much as they're all on my mind all the time and I have to think about all of these projects, essentially I'm visiting and, I'm, and I leave geographically at least maybe not mentally <laughs> and just for anybody listening you currently live in the winter in switzerland and in the summer in malta and with lockdown you were up a mountain half the time so you found your balance i have found my balance yeah how given the myriad of things that you're juggling how do you structure your day and find boundaries between when you've done enough of that day and switch off potentially it's it's quite it's it's quite hard. How I structure my day personally is I get up and I try and ignore all technology 
for until I've swum a kilometer. That's my, <laughs> my one bit of like getting away from technology. And I come back and then I turn everything on and check what's going on in the projects in Nepal or, or wherever it may be. I, I think it's quite an interesting thing how you, how you spend your day, especially when you're starting a business or running your own business. Um, I think one of the traps people can often fall into if you're not necessarily a creative or you're not a data-driven business or something like that, that, that your laptop doesn't automatically equal work. And there's a tendency I've always had in the past, more than I do now, is just get to your laptop. You feel better when you're at laptop, so you can start work. But so much of what I do is in my head and thinking, and it's the worst place to do it is sitting at my laptop. Um, and you start to get stressed that you're not working enough or you haven't produced and things like that. But I think it's just important to bear in mind that everybody's business is totally different and you don't need to um, feel guilty about not necessarily being at your computer all day if, you're, if your job doesn't need it. You're just going to waste time. So actually proactively carve out time for thinking. Yeah, I do. A large part of my job is also research and due diligence. So I, I allocate at least a few hours a day to, to, to researching future projects I don't really have any time off, but only because there's the potential for something to happen, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm not necessarily always busy, but I can easily get a call on a one o'clock in the morning on Sunday and, and, and something's gone wrong in Kathmandu. Hence why it's so important on your day to day to carve out time for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, so many of the ideas that I've had have certainly come from from not sitting down at my computer thinking, what should I be doing? It's so true. I've, I mean, I'm four months into this myself of this sort of freedom of autonomy of running my own day and setting up a company. But the 20 year guilt of I need to be at my desk before nine, I need to be present, I need to show that I'm here. And no one ever really knew what I was doing minute by minute, but they'd see the end results and go, fine, she's trusted, we know she's doing a good job. But for me, it was if I'm in the office and a laptop, I'm I'm doing a good job and running out to see press or going on appointments or talking to the retail teams, I'd actually learn so much more about the business and have so many more ideas that when I actually came back to my desk, I was buzzing. <laughs> so it's such a good thing. I hadn't thought about that because I'm definitely in this very early days. If I'm at my laptop, I feel better about the fact I'm self-employed. And actually, <laughs> yeah. if I went for a walk around the park a little bit more often, I might be a bit more productive when I come back to it. Yeah, I, I, I'm a firm believer in that. And is there anything you learned from a previous role that benefits you today? Yeah, it would be from the stock exchange, actually. And it would be asking for money because if, not, not, not for me personally, but asking for money, asking for large amounts of money for things that need to be done. And when I first started at the stock exchange, I was sort of blown away by about the numbers I was talking about to people financially. And it took me time to adjust to the fact it's just digits. But it can be scary dealing in, in, in large numbers, large, large figures. And but I learned to ask. That has helped me helped me a lot in my projects and when I'm pitching a, a project to to a donor or to a client. Um, I can I pitch much bigger, more impactful projects rather than I think in the past, my, before the stock exchange, maybe my tendency might have been, oh, I'm so lucky to have been in this situation. I better not screw it up by asking too much. And I think that served, served me well. Um, but, it, but also the stock exchange, it taught me how to speak with sort of C-level people in the, in the boardroom. And, and I'm, my clients over the years have been hedge funds and wealth management firms. It's my job to take the information from my project manager up a mountain in the Himalayas 
it's my job to take that into into a boardroom basically in central London and communicate it to people who do not have the time. It's unbelievable how different the communication is from, from someone in, in Burma, whatever it is, to what needs to be said in the boardroom um, succinctly and to the point. And that also answers the question about your best advice for managing clients, team suppliers. It sounds like it's purely strong communication. Yeah, strong communication. And I would say for clients, regardless of your sort of fiscal situation or where you are with your business, just above and beyond is, is always better because they're using you for a service. So you need to give back. Thank you. I think that, I mean, I could talk to you for days about what you do. It's so exciting to know that you're doing this and how many more people in the future are going to benefit from the work that you do. For anyone listening as well, it's the fact that you can do something that's so rewarding for you as well. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I feel really fortunate to be doing this job and I can't really imagine doing anything else now. I'll I'll be doing this for the next 30, 40 years. So it's exciting to think about the numbers of how many people we can help and the impact we'll have over that period of time based on what we've achieved so far. Well, congratulations. And thank you very much. Good luck with everything. Yeah. And good luck to you too. Thank you, Quentin, for sharing all of this useful advice. I'm really going to try and break 20 years of laptop guilt and now feel confident that taking breaks and going for that walk is actually going to be very beneficial to not only my brain, but my business. If you'd like to contact Quentin and find out more about Canalan, all of his contact details in the show notes, along with a recap of the advice that he has shared. I would also love to hear from you. If you've got any questions you'd like me to ask future guests, please do get in touch. Thank you for listening to How to Start Up, hosted by me, Juliet Fallowfield, founder of PR consultancy for startups, Fallowfield and Mason. I hope these conversations offer you some confidence, encouragement and reassurance that you're on the right track. I would be delighted if you'd rate, review and share this podcast with anyone else who might be starting a company in 2020.